scripture lesson is from the book of Acts, chapter 16, verses 11 through 15. We set sail from Troas and took a straight course to Samothrace, the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city for some days. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate by the river, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had gathered there. A certain woman named Lydia, a worshiper of God, was listening to us. She was from the city of Theatira and a dealer in purple cloth. The Lord opened her heart to listen eagerly to what was said by Paul. When she and her household were baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come and stay at my home. And she prevailed upon us. The word of God for the people of God. Well, as Scott mentioned just a moment ago, we had a joyful moment in the life of the church earlier this week. Uh, On Tuesday evening in this place, we had a special church conference, and at that church conference, we voted unanimously to affirm the gifts and graces of Ryan Walker and to approve him as a candidate for ministry in the United Methodist Church. It It was a great moment in the life of Court Street United Methodist Church, and this is how things happen in the United Methodist Church. We've always been a a democratic sort of a church. When there's a big decision that needs to be made, this is what we do. We get a conference of people together, and then we have a vote. And that's how leadership happens at every level of the United Methodist Church. So each year here at Court Street, our church conference votes to send delegates to the Michigan Annual Conference, which is going to happen in Traverse City in just a couple weeks. Every four years, the Michigan Annual Conference votes to send delegates to the General Conference. Every four years, United Methodists from all around the world come together in one place, and they wrestle with the issues that are facing the church, and they make big decisions that affect the life of the church and shape the future of the church. One of the biggest, one of the most memorable, one of the most controversial general conferences that ever happened took place 130. 35 years ago this month. In May of 1888, there was a big general conference that happened in New York City. And so Methodists from all around the church gathered in New York City to wrestle with issues and to make big decisions. And that year, in 1888, five women were elected by their annual conferences as delegates to the general conference. Now, that would not be a big deal today. But in the church in 1888, it was a very big deal because in the Methodist church in 1888, it was against the rules for women to be elected as delegates to the general conference. At that time, the rules of the Methodist Church stated that in order to be at the table, in order to have a seat at the general conference, in order to vote on all of the biggest issues facing the church, you needed to be a man. Now, the annual conferences that elected these five women as delegates, they they knew the rules. They knew that what they were doing was against the rules, but they all, at a certain point, decided enough is enough. 
enough. They all decided at a certain point that, that witnessing to the gospel sometimes is more important than following the rules of the church. And so they elected these five women as, as a form of protest. They said, we are going to send these women to the general conference, and then the general conference is going to have to make a decision. Either they can follow the direction in which the Holy Spirit is leading the church, or they can look these women in the eye and say to these women, you are not able to serve, you cannot lead because you are not a man. And eventually that's exactly what happened. These women arrived at the general conference in New York City and they tried to take their place among the other delegates. And when they tried to take their place there at the general conference, the conference was thrown into an uproar and finally after much consternation and debate, the general conference said to these women, you may not be seated among the other delegates. And their places were taken by reserve delegates. Their places were taken by men. And it is so hard hard for us. Isn't it 135 years later? It is so hard for us to wrap our minds around the idea that at that time the Methodist church was willing to reject the gift that God was trying to give the church in the gifts and the graces of these women. All these years later, it is so, so hard for me, so hard for all of us to comprehend that the church was willing to deny itself the wisdom and the leadership that these women could have provided to the church. And it is even harder to understand that decision when you know that one of the women who were turned away that day, one of the five women who was elected as a delegate to the 1888 General Conference was at that time one of the most influential, one of the most renowned, one of the most famously effective leaders and organizers in all of America at that time. Frances Willard was an academic superstar She was a college valedictorian at a time when many women were not able to get a higher education. And then she became a college professor. And then she was a college president. And then she was the first dean of women at Northwestern University. And she did all of these things before she was 35 years old. And everybody agreed that Frances Willard had this sparkling academic career ahead of her. But then at the age of 35, Frances Willard made a decision to take her life in a whole new direction. At the age of 35, Frances Willard left the university. She left the ivory towers of academia behind, and she decided to give herself entirely to a a cause that she believed in with her whole heart. Frances Willard became a leader in the temperance movement. Now these days, when we think back on that time in American history, when we think back on, on the temperance movement, usually we think of the temperance movement as a sort of historical punchline. Right? When we think about the temperance activists and the temperance organizers, we think of them as a, a bunch of overly religious busybodies who were so afraid that somebody somewhere might be having fun that they decided to try to ban alcohol for an entire nation. And, and we laugh at them. We sort of snicker and snort and roll our eyes at how misguided and ineffective they were. These days, when people think back on the temperance movement, we think of them as a, as a sort of a joke of the 19th century. But back in those days, after At that time, the temperance movement was a serious political movement, and it was about much more than simply banning the sale of alcohol. 
Now, the temperance organizers, they did want to ban the sale of alcohol, but they wanted to ban it for a very particular reason. They didn't want to ban alcohol because they hated the idea that people would have fun. They wanted to ban alcohol because at that time, so many men were drinking away the wages that their families needed in order to survive. Alcohol was causing suffering for women and children, and so temperance was about improving the lives of women and children and the most, value, the most vulnerable people in American society. And temperance was about more than just banning alcohol. Those temperance activists, they also wanted to improve the lives of women by giving women, women of every race the right to vote. And they wanted to improve the lives of children by raising the age of consent. At that time, in most United States, the age of consent was only 10 years old. In one state, in Delaware, the age of consent was as low as 7 years old. The temperance movement wanted to put an end to state-sanctioned child abuse. And the temperance movement was about a whole set of economic reforms, like the 8-hour workday that would have improved the lives of the working poor. This is what the temperance movement was all about. It was about improving the lives of women and children and immigrants and the poor. It was about improving the lives and protecting the most vulnerable people in all of American society. And Frances Willard became the face of the temperance movement. She traveled endlessly organizing for the temperance movement. She gave, on average, 400 speeches a year. And whenever she spoke, wherever she was in the nation, she spoke to crowds of hundreds and thousands of people. People came from miles around to hear Frances Willard speak. The organization that she led became the largest women's organization in all of America. Frances Willard's reputation grew to the point where one pastor famously said something like, I suppose that only God and Buffalo Bill are more famous than Francis Willard. And he wasn't exaggerating. That was the truth. Francis Willard was one of the most famously effective leaders in all of America. And it was clear to anyone who was paying attention that God was working through Francis Willard to do a new and monumental thing. And that shouldn't have been a surprise to the leaders of the Methodist Church. Because when we read the stories of Scripture... And when we look at the history of the church, it becomes clear to us that over and over again, when God wants to do a new and monumental thing, God chooses to work through the hearts and minds and hands of women in order to do that new and monumental thing. Today we have a scripture reading from the New Testament book of Acts. And the book of Acts tells the story of the beginning of the church. In the book of Acts, we find the story of the things that happened after Easter Sunday when the women discovered the empty tomb and the women proclaimed that Jesus had been raised from the dead and the men refused to believe them. The book of Acts tells us the story of the things that happened after God poured out the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost on men and women so that the gospel might be proclaimed to all of the nations. As we pick up the story today, we find the Apostle Paul and his friends making their way out of the city of Jerusalem. In last Sunday's message, we heard about a great big council of the church. We heard about a conference of the apostles that took place in the city of Jerusalem. After that big meeting of the apostles, the apostle Paul and his companions decided that it was time to hit the road. It was time to get back to the work, the mission that God had given them of sharing God's love in Jesus with all of the nations. And so they left the city of Jerusalem. Paul's initial plan was to retrace his footsteps. 
He wanted to go out and he wanted to visit the churches that he had started. He wanted to see his friends. He wanted to encourage his companions and colleagues in the work that they were doing to share God's love and build up the church. But as Paul and his companions were making their way out of the city of Jerusalem, God said, Paul, that's not what I have in mind for you right now. God said, Paul, I don't want you to walk in your own footsteps. Instead, I have a new adventure planned for you. I want you to go to the city of Philippi. Going to the city of Philippi was a big step for the Apostle Paul, and it was a big step for the church. Philippi was unlike any place where Paul had done ministry before. Up until this moment, all of Paul's ministry had taken place within the Middle East. Up until this moment, all of Paul's ministry had happened in places where he understood the culture and he knew the people, but Philippi was a different kind of a place. Philippi was not in the Middle East. Philippi was in the part of the world that today we call Greece. Philippi was just across the border in the continent of Europe. When God said, Paul, I want you to go to Philippi, God was saying, Paul, I want you to bring the gospel to a whole new continent. I want you to share my love with a whole new part of the world. And so Paul and his friends went to the city of Philippi. And when they walked through the gates and entered the city, Paul looked around and he realized that he had never felt more out of place in his life than he did at that moment. Philippi was not just a European city. Philippi was a military town. Philippi was a popular retirement destination for soldiers in the Roman army. And so for decades, thousands and thousands of retired soldiers had been moving and making their homes in Philippi. And so they brought with them their Roman military culture. They brought with them their love of of ranking and hierarchy. When, When people met each other in the streets, the first thing that they asked each other was always, what was your rank and where did you serve? Philippi was the kind of place where testosterone flowed freely through the streets of the city. Those soldiers also brought with them their patriotism and their devotion to the emperor and to the Roman gods. And so Philippi was filled with temples to all of the Roman gods. It was filled with places of worship for every god you could possibly imagine except for the god of the Jews. For the first time in his life, when Paul went to Philippi, he found himself in a city that had no synagogue. For the first time in his life, Paul found himself in a city where there were hardly any Jews at all. And Paul didn't know where to start with these people. He went to the marketplace and he tried preaching in the marketplace, but he very quickly discovered that all of those macho military veterans were not at all interested in hearing the Christian gospel. They weren't interested in hearing the story of a man who had been crucified as an enemy of the emperor. They weren't interested in hearing the teachings of a man who had declared all people equal in the sight of God. They weren't interested in becoming part of a movement that was about breaking down every distinction and hierarchy between peoples in this world. The the macho military veterans in the marketplace simply were not interested in what Paul was trying to sell them. And so Paul went back to the marketplace day after day after day, and he didn't make a single convert. And then it was the Sabbath. And because there was no synagogue in the city, Paul and his friends decided to go outside the city walls and see if they could find a quiet place to worship and pray. And they found a good place to worship outside the walls of the city by the side of the river. 
And as they were there by the side of the river, they encountered a group of women. They struck up a conversation. And they discovered that these women outside the city were much more interested in hearing the gospel than the men inside the city had been. One woman in particular was inspired by the words and the teachings of Jesus. One woman in particular was captivated and moved by this vision of a society, of a community in which there were no rankings or hierarchies or distinctions between people. Her name was Lydia. And Lydia was a lot like Frances Willard in that Lydia was an unusual and exceptional woman. Now, just as Frances Willard was a woman in higher education at a time when education was closed to most women, Lydia was an independent woman at a time when most women weren't allowed to own property and most women were dependent upon men for their place in society. Lydia wasn't just independent. She was a business owner. She had a business that manufactured this valuable and expensive purple cloth. And when Lydia heard the teachings of Jesus... When she heard this vision of a different kind of community, a different way of living in this world, she was so moved that she said to Paul, I want to be baptized into this thing. I want to become a part of the church right here and now. And so Paul baptized her right there in the river. And then Lydia invited Paul and his friends to come and stay in her home, of which she was the head of the household. And so Paul and his friends came and they stayed in Lydia's home, and her home became a place of worship. A church was born in that home, a church that at that time and for many years thereafter was led not by men, but by women. Her home became the first Christian house of worship in all of Europe. Her home became the springboard for a mission to share God's love with a whole new part of the world, a whole new continent. Lydia opened the door to the gospel for the gospel to enter into a whole new part of the world. God used Lydia and her faith to do this new and monumental thing, just as God used Francis Willard to do a new and monumental thing. Francis Willard never got to see the fruits of her labors. Finally, after years and years of debate, in 1904, for the very first time, the Methodist Church allowed women to serve as delegates at the General Conference. But Frances Willard didn't get to see it. Frances Willard had died six years earlier in 1898. The Methodist Church never got to receive the gift that God was trying to give us in Frances Willard. The Methodist Church never got to benefit from the wisdom and leadership that she tried to offer the church. And sometimes that's the way it goes in the church. Sometimes the last people to receive the gospel are the very people who are responsible for proclaiming it. But the good news is that God has never asked our permission before pouring out the Holy Spirit. The good news is that God is perfectly happy to pour out the Holy Spirit, not only inside, but also outside the church. God is perfectly happy to work outside the walls and the rules and the procedures of the church. God is perfectly happy to pour out the Holy Spirit on people of all races and nations and ages and genders because the Holy Spirit of God does not discriminate and the love of God does not discriminate and the grace of God does not discriminate. And one day, God willing, and maybe with a little bit of help from this year's confirmands, one day, God willing, neither will we. Let's pray. God, we pray 
for a movement of your Holy Spirit in the church. We pray for you to lead us through these young people who we have received into membership today. Help us to hear their voices and follow where they would take us, believing that in them you have given us a gift. God, make us open to new possibilities, new ways of living in this world, new kinds of community, that the world might discover the grace, the love, the community that does not discriminate. In Jesus we pray. Amen.